So this morning, I want to talk to you about overcoming failure. We're in a series right now that we've titled Fully Alive. And I believe one of the things that keeps people from experiencing life to the full is that you've empowered some failure in your past and you continue to beat yourself up over something of yesterday. How do we overcome failure? How do we get past those blunders of yesterday? Reality is we here at the cross are committed to connecting your story with Christ and others. We want to see you fully alive with Christ, totally engaged with other people. And so as we contemplate this today, I pray that you would open your heart, your mind, and uh, as we get rolling into this, this is going to be a very, listen to me, contemplative kind of teaching today. So let's eliminate distractions. Let's make sure our phones are turned off. And uh, if you do have to exit, I ask you when you come back in to sit in the back, that would help us big time. Now, here's a premise statement. All of us in this room, every person under my voice has blown it. I don't care if you're 8 or 80. I don't care how old you are and where you find yourself today. You've messed some things up. You've said things that you wished you hadn't said. You've done things that you wished that you hadn't done. And if you could have a do-over, you would go, I'd take one there. Golfing terminology, I've played in these scrambles, these fundraisers for different organizations. And when you go and sign up that morning to play in this scramble, they'll ask you, would you like to buy some mulligans? A mulligan means when you hit that ball in the woods, We'll give you three mulligans for five or ten bucks. You can take another ball and stick it on the tee and hit it in the woods if you hit like I do. <laughs> but we all wish that we had some mulligans, some do-overs. Here, here, here would be something I would want to sink into your heart. The good news is failure doesn't have to be fatal. Some of you have empowered your failure your mistake, your blunder, you've empowered it as being a fatal moment in your life. And for some of you, if you're not careful, you will define that failure as being your identity. Winston Churchill said it this way, success is not final, failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. I've got to have courage to get back up. And I'm like, Churchill is right. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, the godly may trip seven times, but they get back up. But one failure is enough to overthrow the wicked, which implies the sign of the saved is their ability to get back up even after they've jacked it up and to say, I will not empower that and I will not allow that failure to be my identity. Now, I want to share with you this morning reflections as I was in Israel. Now again, Barb and I have been back from Israel now for about 10 days. And while we were in Israel, there's a ton of stuff that we saw, a ton of stuff that we experienced. But I want to share with you some of those reflections, if you will. And I want to kind of put it in the context again of how do you overcome failure. Luke chapter 22, I would highly encourage you. There's pens in the seat backs in front of you. You've got a bulletin. 
And I would highly encourage you to take notes today. My notes will be online, thecrossloganville.org. Access our message for today, fully alive. It will be week number four, and all of my notes, my seven pages are there for you. I want you to get this. Luke 22, verse 8, we're looking at the last 18 hours of Jesus' earthly life. And the scripture says that Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. Go and prepare the Passover. Now they would go into the city and Jesus said, you're going to meet this man and he's going to lead you to this room and here's what you do. And they did. Now, Passover, as an evangelical, as a person Gentile who has repented and responded to the gospel, listen to me, I highly encourage you to study your messianic roots. I think it is very important to study the seven feasts of Israel. I think it is very important to study some of those practices of Judaism that we've been grafted into. Jesus celebrated the feast. He celebrated all seven feasts. Now, what is Passover? It is a Jewish celebration remembering the exodus from Egypt. You can read it through the book of Exodus. And it commemorates the Israelites' freedom from Egypt. God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Pharaoh refused. God brought forth these 10 different plagues, if you will, on Pharaoh in Egypt. The 10th plague was the death of all of the firstborn of Egypt. So when you start to study this, the night of the first Passover goes all the way back to Exodus, and it was the night of the 10th plague. They would take a spotless, uh, unblemished lamb, bring it. They were to sacrifice that animal. They were to take the blood. They were to put it over the doorpost. And when the death angel were to pass by, he would pass over the homes that were covered in the blood. Thus, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death. When John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin and no remission of sin. Jesus now, capture this moment, is with his disciples and he's in the upper room. Now here is a portrait of the upper room. Here is the exact spot that Jesus went with his disciples. Now many believe that when he says they were reclining here, as I'll read, they were sitting on the floor and they were celebrating this Passover meal. We call it the Last Supper. Jesus is with the 12 that he has chosen, that he has picked, that he's been doing life with. He's in the upper room. When the hour had come, verse 14, when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles were with him and he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now guys, what we're about to eat, you don't totally get but I want to eat this meal with you before I become ultimately once and for all the Passover lamb. What I'm about to do is going to provide the bloodshed atonement for people to come all over the world, no matter what their nationality, no matter what their religious pre preference. What I'm about to do is going to bring about hope and redemption for all, if they will repent and respond. When he had taken some bread... We do communion here every week. We make it available to people. This is where we go. When he had taken some bread 
and given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus takes this unleavened bread, breaks it, and he starts to pass it around to the disciples. The body of Christ, when you study scripture, represents that the sin of you and I would be carried by Jesus on Golgotha. Then Jesus said, in the same way, he took the cup, and after, after they had eaten, he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant, which is my blood. The blood of Jesus is, symbol, is symbolic for cleansing you from sin. Where the body of Christ carried your sin, the blood would cleanse us once and for all and to bring us into right standing with God. Make sense? So here's the, the backdrop. Then Jesus makes this statement. Now, jog with me. Jesus says, verse 21, Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. One of y'all are going to betray me. It has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus is looking at these 12 that has walked with him for three years, and he's one of y'all is going to betray me. You're going to be unfaithful. You're going to sell me out. You're going to throw me under the bus. You're going to absolutely betray me. The disciples, verse 23, began discussing among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do such a thing. Verse 24, there also arose a dispute among them as to which one of them would be regarded as greatest. So now you've got this conversation going on, this final Passover that Jesus is having with his disciples, Matt, and he looks at them and says, one of you will betray me. They're looking going, which one of us is going to do something like that? Then the next statement is, which one of you do you think is the greatest among us right now? I mean, what kind of ego trip and crazy conversation is this? Jesus is hanging and they want to talk about, hey, I'm the man, right? And they almost ignore his statement. Who will betray? Who is the greatest? What are we going to do? Verse 31, Jesus said to Simon, 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 a.k.a. Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And even after you've blown it, Peter, once you have turned again, I want you to go back and strengthen your brothers. Who's going to betray him? Hey, I, I'm praying that your faith don't fail you, Peter. Peter said, Lord, uh, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die with you. I, I would never do anything like that implied. You, you know me. I've walked on water. I've done a lot of cool things with you. Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you even know me. Stay with me. How do you overcome failure? Now, Jesus tells the disciples Let's go over to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is high up. If you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you look down at Jerusalem, you see the eastern gate, the eastern wall, you see the gate of beautiful, you see these steps there where they were to, would gather later as I talk about in Acts chapter 2, and you can look down at Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley and you can see the old ruins of the city of David, where the temple is in this time. So Jesus is looking down. He cries over Jerusalem. He, he is 
praying and begging Jerusalem to get their life right. He's on the Mount of Olives. Jesus came out and proceeded as his custom to the Mount of Olives. The disciples also followed him. He withdrew about a stone's throw away, knelt down, and began to pray. About a stone's throw from Mount of Olives, if you go down just a bit, is a place called Gethsemane. Many call it the wine press or the olive press. It's the place of squeezing and pressing. Jesus is in Gethsemane, and there Jesus is praying. The Bible says the disciples couldn't even stay awake, but Jesus is there. And he says, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Being in agony and praying fervently, his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. So Jesus is in this intense pressured moment. There's a lot of fatigue and a lot of exhaustion. And it's one of the most sobering moments as Jesus cries out, if there's any other way for you to bring about redemption for humanity and reconcile man back to you, please do it. But I don't want my will. I want your will done. It's a heavy prayer. Pick it up in verse 47. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came and Judas, one of the 12, proceeded the others, he approached Jesus to kiss him, and Jesus says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Betrayal, disloyal, selling me out. Judas, are you doing this to me? Now, here's the question being posed that you've got to deal with. How will Judas handle his failure? What will Judas do? How is Judas going to move? He sold him out. How is he going to respond to what he's done? That's the question you and I have to deal with in our own failure. I've jacked it up. I've messed it up. I wish I could have a do-over, but I can't. How am I going to respond to my failure? When you pick up the text of Matthew 27, 3, it says, Then Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned. He felt remorse, returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. He departed, and he went away, and he hanged himself. L listen to me. How you process failure will determine whether you live a life of victory or whether you live a life of misery and continued defeat. How you process failure is going to determine whether you move toward victory and freedom or whether you live in defeat. The scripture says he felt remorse. He felt guilt. He felt shame. Eventually, he goes out and he commits suicide. Under my voice, every Sunday, people walk in here. People walk in here that have blown it. But for some of you, you feel remorse. You look back, you beat yourself up, you condemn yourself, and you live in habitual guilt and shame. People week after week after week, they come here, they go back to work, they hang with their families, but deep down inside, they continue to commit spiritual suicide. They don't believe God is good. They will not repent. They will not confess. They will not address what's deep down inside. And there's people that are living in defeat deep in their soul. Maybe you haven't taken a rope and hung it around your neck, 
But for some people, when they look at their failure and they look at their mistake and they conclude there's no hope, then death becomes a quick fix and a quick option. It does, and it's so sad as I look at people's narratives. How did Judas respond? He killed himself. I'm out of here. I can't handle it. I'm gone. Verse 54. They've come out. They've arrested Jesus. They led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. Where did they take him? They took him to Caiaphas' house. So now Jesus goes from Gethsemane back through the Kidron Valley. Now he's led more toward where the temple and the wall surrounding the temple is, and he's led over to Caiaphas' house. They take him there. We stood there on that path, that old 2,000-plus-year-old walkway that Jesus would have walked going to Caiaphas' house. And I stood there and looked, saying, that's where my Savior walked. That's when he was, that's when he was arrested unjustly. This is the beginning of where the trial, the beating, the garrison room, Gabbatha, the place of stony pavement, that he would eventually be led to Golgotha where he would shed blood and be crucified. He's walking this path. These last, these last six, 10, 18 hours, look at what he's going through. And I stood there. And when you're standing there, Look at verse 54. But Peter was following at a distance. Judas has hung himself. Peter is looking going, am I willing to pay the, the price and count the cost to be with him? They're, they're leading him. They're about to kill him. Do I want to be identified? What am I going to do? Peter follows at a distance. John chapter 18 captures it this way. Because it was cold, the servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire, and Peter was sitting among them. So Peter is sitting there warming himself at this charcoal fire. Listen, while he's there, a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at Peter, she said, this man was with us, Jesus too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know what you're talking about. A little later, another person saw him and said, you're one of them too. But he denied it. Man, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man was also with him. He's Galilean too. But Peter denied it. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The rooster crows. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You're going to deny me. You're going to sell me out too. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Let me read it. Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he told him before a rooster crows today, you're going to deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. Capture this, capture this, capture this. Listen to me. Crucial. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Whatever expression that you believe that Jesus had when he looked at Peter is crucial to your theology. 
If you believe that Jesus looked at Peter with a scornful face that implied, you big, stupid idiot, your view of God is God's mad at you, God's ticked at you, and you'll never do anything to please that God. But if you believe, if something inside of you can get to the place where you believe, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter, with love, with compassion, with grace, with mercy. Whatever your view of this look is, Jesus to Peter, is going to be crucial for how you do life. Because when you jack it up, you blow it, and you experience failure, what is the look of the Savior toward you? Now, while we were there, it was so crazy. There's this statue right there by that walkway that led to Caiaphas's house. And it's the statue of Peter. And it's a statue of Peter warming his hands over this charcoal fire. And the three people that he denied Jesus to are represented in this photo. In the statue that you see. And on top of the statue is a rooster. There's a rooster. The church, Rachel, that was right there by this Caiaphas' house and path, this Catholic church that they had built, they had put a rooster on the church. But, but I would ask you this. If Peter has been labeled for years according to his failure, and if the animal best used to describe Peter by the guilters was a rooster, it's your heightened place of rebellion. When you were living in failure and rebellion, what animal best describes you? If you had to say, while I was raising hell and living in wickedness or denying God or refusing to submit to the lordship of Jesus, what animal best describes you? And I was telling Nick the other day, I don't even make the animal kingdom. I'm sitting here pondering this going, I was a leech. I would attach myself to people and suck the life out of them. I was so consumed with my own personal pleasure and hedonistic pursuits. I just sucked the blood and life out of everybody. I didn't care. It was about me. And I thought, man, he's been labeled. And I'm standing there going, this is crucial. How did he handle his failure? Judas runs to guilt. Judas runs to shame. Judas takes himself out of the game. What's Peter going to do? Peter, how are you going to respond? Where, where, where are you going? You read the scripture and Jesus is led from Caiaphas' house to these other places and he's beaten, crown of thorns, sword thrust through him. All this stuff happens. And then the scripture says as he dies at Golgotha, the place of the skull, they remove his body and they place him in a borrowed tomb. I showed you a portrait of the borrowed tomb where we were 
the tomb many scholars believe Jesus was at, where they placed him after he died. Peter, how are you going to respond to your failure? What are you going to do? Listen to me. Luke 24, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb. Who are they? Read it. These different ladies showed up. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they had entered, they did not find the body of the Lord. They were perplexed. Behold, there were two men standing there in dazzling clothing, two angels of the Lord. The men said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. What, what are you looking for? You go on to read, they returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11. Judas is gone. And they reported it to others. Verse 12, verse 12. Peter got up, ran to the tomb, stooping down, looking in. He saw the linen wrappings. And he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. Wow, he's not here. The angel said he's risen. Why am I seeking the living among the dead? And he went home. Where did he go? If you look at a map of Israel, this all took place in Jerusalem. The betrayal, the crucifixion. And now Peter goes home. A Sabbath day's journey, he goes 60 miles north back up to the Sea of Galilee. Where are you going, Peter? I'm going back home. How are you going to handle your failure, Peter? The narrative is still unfolding. John chapter 21, after these things, Jesus manifested himself Again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, 60 miles north. He manifested himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, Zebedee, etc. were all together. Peter said, I'm going fishing. I'm going to go back and do what I was doing before I met him. I'm going to go back and start doing what is familiar to me. It appears that this God thing hasn't worked out. I don't know how to make sense out of it. The last conversation I had with him, I denied him. Judas, one of our homies, has hung himself. These last days has been crazy. I'm going home. He gets home. Hey, guys, let's go fish, man. Let's go do what we know how to do. Let's get away from it. The other one said, we will also come with you. They went out, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Go on back and do what you were doing before you met Christ. Some of you tried the God thing, tried the Jesus thing, kind of went to church for a little bit, but you had expectations and God didn't meet your prayers and you threw the towel in. And for some of you, you've kind of recycled back in here after years. God's not a cosmic Santa. He's not here to let you sit on his lap and just make your life easy every day. They caught nothing. When the day was breaking, Jesus was on the beach. The disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to the boys, you don't have any fish, do you? No. Nah. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat. You'll find a catch. So they did. They were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, John refers to himself this way many times throughout the Gospel of John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Peter, that last conversation you had with him, I think you're going to get another one. 
Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. Peter, it's him. They got on the land and saw a charcoal fire. The last time Peter smelt a charcoal fire was when he was denying Jesus. Peter, I'm a God of grace, mulligans. Come here, son. You smell that? You remember the last time you smelt that smell? I don't want that last smell to be the smell that you carry for the rest of your life. Come here. Come, come here. They get there, and Jesus has got a charcoal fire, fish, and bread. He's like, guys, bring me what you call. Verse 12, come, let's have breakfast. So Jesus takes Peter back to the smell that he had encountered days before of that denial. Now, listen, Jesus has breakfast with the guys. How is Peter going to handle this failure? When they had finished breakfast, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus uses the word agape. Peter, do you agape me more than these? He wasn't talking about the other disciples. He was talking about the stinking fish. Do you love me more than these fish? Do you agape me? Will you sacrifice your life for me? And Peter looks at Jesus and says, Lord, you know I phileo you. Peter couldn't even use the word agape. Do you agape? I, I can't say I can go there, but I can say I brotherly love you. I know I do. Jesus says, then go tend to my lambs. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Jesus uses the word agape again. Peter responds back, Lord, you know I phileo you. Third time, Jesus looks at him, Peter, do you phileo me? Jesus reduces his verbiage. Do you phileo me, Peter? Peter was grieved because the Lord asked him a third time. And Peter said, Lord, I do phileo you. Go shepherd my sheep, go tend my lambs. And then Jesus departs from him. Do you love me? But he tells him, go back down to Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's journey. It's going to take him six days. Guys, go back to Jerusalem. I didn't tell you to leave there in the first place. And they go. And while they're there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is with the disciples talking to them again. And he ascends into heaven. And he tells them, I'm coming back the same way I left. The eastern sky is going to split, and this is where I'm coming. That's the reason the Jews have turned the Mount of Olives into a cemetery, because they want to make sure they're dead or the first ones there when he returns. Check out modern-day pictures. It ain't nothing but a cemetery. But Jesus says, y'all go back to Jerusalem. Go back over to that upper room and wait. Y'all go wait. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there came, Acts 2, listen, 
from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were be bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? How are you going to respond, Peter? What are, what are you going to do? Acts 2, 14. Then Peter stepped up with the other 11 and shouted. Peter stepped up 52 days before he's denying Jesus. What happened to you, dude? I had this supernatural encounter with a grace awakening of God. 52 days later, he stands up. Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews, residents of Jerusalem. Then he preaches eloquently this incredible sermon with quoting the prophet Joel, different parts of David, other things, and he lays it out. And then he says in verse 36, after he's preached Jesus, let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord master, ruler, authority, and Messiah, the anointed one. I know he is. I denied him, but he showed up, up there in Tiberias. I had this encounter. He asked me, do you love me? What he was saying is, I ain't quit loving you, and you hadn't quit loving me, but you got scared and sold out. Now, come here, look at me. We're not done with this yet. Yeah, and some of us have jacked it up, and we've taken ourselves out of the game, and we've empowered our failure. Peter stands up, verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said, the people, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ to show that you have received forgiveness for your sin, then you will receive the Holy Spirit, the promises to you and to your children and even to us Gentiles. All who have been called by God. Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourselves. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and they were added about 3,000. 52 days ago, I jacked it up. I sold him out. 52 days ago, I said I didn't know him. I wept bitterly. I even went back home and said, what's the use? Peter, what did you do? I confronted my failure. You confronted it. You didn't dismiss it. You didn't deny it. You didn't disregard it. You confronted it. Yeah, I did that. Well, what did you do? I embraced this grace. He looked at me with kindness and compassion and told me that he loved me. He, he told me he wasn't done with me yet. He told me my sin didn't disqualify me. He told me that his grace and his love and his mercy and redemption qualified me. He, he told me what he did made me usable, not what I had done. Yeah. Well, what'd you do, Peter? Well, I exercised courage. I got ghosted by the Holy Spirit. 
I went back to where he said go. I waited, and when the Holy Spirit fell, it absolutely shattered my paradigm. Peter, you're only 19, 20 years old. You were over here standing on the temple steps. Acts 4.13 says that they recognized y'all were uneducated, unlearned, untrained men. They said y'all were just a bunch of fools. He said, yeah, we were fools for Jesus. I stood and I preached and 3,000 plus got saved. Yeah. So, so here is what I would say with you. Refuse to empower your failure. We, we don't think this way, but we should. No matter how bad you've jacked it up, you ran to Jesus at a crucial time in your life, you knew you were messed up. Whether you had divorced somebody, whether you were cheating, whether you were strung out on alcohol, drugs, whatever, you, you messed it up. Maybe you got betrayed. Maybe you come in here wallowing every week just saying, life sucks since I got betrayed. Can you have the attitude of Jesus toward your betrayer? And can you have the attitude of Peter toward your own betrayal? Your greatest victory may be hours ahead of you. Your greatest victory may be days ahead. Peter had no clue when he denied Jesus that 52 days later, God would use him like never before. So part of your biographical sketch has got some, it's got some bloopers on it. It's got some failures on it. You got some hiccups on it. But I believe the relentless tenderness of Jesus is looking at you today saying, stop empowering that past. I have died for your sin once and for all. I have canceled out your debt. I want to give you freedom. I want to restore your life but you've got to come to me. A few weeks back, I had a guy who's in one of these recovery groups. He came up and he said, if I write a note to Jesus and really write out what I've jacked up and I, I tape it up, I want anybody to open it. Can I lay it over there at the foot of the cross and give it to Jesus? And I was like, yes. He goes, I don't want anybody reading it. I said, well, it don't belong to them anyway. Just nail it to the cross. And some of you need to nail your failure to the cross. We're here to see you connect with Christ. See your story fully alive with Christ and others. But you will not live fully alive if you're still empowering some failure of your past. Get over the fact that you jacked it up. Embrace the fact that you're human on your good day and collide with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ where he says, I love you, I forgive you now. Don't, don't, don't go do it anymore, but let's go. I got a new assignment for you, Mama Kay. I'm not done with you. It's time to get back in the game. That's my cry for you today. Whatever you're struggling with that you've empowered of yesterday, stop it. Confront your failure. Embrace his grace. Now let's go exercise courage as we reach Loganville and beyond.